ideas and ideologies and beliefs are very rarely neutral and they're very rarely passive. When you believe something, especially when you really believe something, it's not something that just lives inside of you. It's something that needs to be acted upon, something that moves you and guides you. And there are two ends of that spectrum where sometimes good beliefs can result in good behavior, bad beliefs can result in bad actions. And when true believers, when people really believe something, they're often radically moved by their beliefs. Some beliefs can inspire people to take lives in hate. We've seen a very bad example of that in our country over the last couple weeks when a bad and a sinful idea like white supremacy has caused violence and division and hatred and caused people to act in a way that is extremely unchristlike and counterintuitive to the way that we were designed to live. But we also know that sometimes ideas inspire people to go the other direction and give their lives for the sake of peace and for the sake of love and the sake of caring for others. And there's a variety of actions everywhere in between. As Christians, we claim a set of beliefs. We claim to believe in something. In fact, we claim to believe in someone who is not neutral and someone who is not passive. One of the basic things as a follower of Jesus is that we say that we believe in God. Many of our old creeds and confessions begin with that exact sentence, that I believe in God. But do we? Do we believe in God? Do we really believe in God? Do we have the kind of belief in God that moves us, the kind of belief in God that results in action and not a passive life, but a life pursuing Christ? The Apostle Paul believed in God. And he expected the church at Ephesus to believe in God. And he expects all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ to believe with that kind of belief. Paul expected that believers in God, as children of the one true God, he expected that we would know that our belief meant something. That our belief changed everything. And that our belief in that God unites us as one body. This morning, we're going to continue looking at these few verses that we've looked at over the past several weeks as Paul describes the factors that make the church one, that make all of the believers in Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ, that make us one. And we're going to see that we are one because we serve one God. And how the belief in that one God, as He has revealed Himself to us, not only necessitates radical change and action in each one of our lives individually, but that it calls us to radical action and change as one body, corporately believing and moving and serving in union with one another and with our one God who is above all and in all and works through all. And so our passage again for the third week in a row is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul says that there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. God, we do week after week thank you for your word. 
And we also just thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. And God, we thank you that in your word, you reveal to us who you are. The one true God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who keeps all things moving. The God who has breathed life into us once at creation and then once again through salvation by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we could all say that we believe in you and who you are and what you've done and what you will continue to do. But God, you know for all too many of us, sometimes our belief is more of a faint idea in the back of our minds instead of the driving force to everything that we do. And so, God, as we see Paul remind us that we are one because you are one and because you are who you are, Father, I pray that we would leave this place knowing deeply and being convicted passionately that you are the God of heavens and the earth and that there is no one above you or no one even close to you and that you are above all things and over all and through all and in all. And that that would inspire us to live lives that honor and glorify you in all that we do but also that would inspire us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as one. And so speak through your word this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, Paul finds himself in a very difficult and probably intimidating situation. The Apostle Paul is in the midst of a place called Mars Hill, where he's surrounded by Greek thinkers and philosophers. And it was in this host of Greek thinkers and philosophers and and pagan leaders, in the shadows of foreign deities and gods and statues to represent all different belief systems. Paul stood in the middle of all of that, and he boldly declared that there is one God who is worthy to be followed. The one true God, the God of Israel, the God who sent Christ to bring salvation and offers to us a new hope and new life and even resurrection. And again, in this chapter in Ephesians, Paul is making that same kind of declaration. The church at Ephesus was in the midst of a community that was very focused on worshiping other deities. They had a large theater with about 20,000 seats where at one point people would just chant, Hail to Artemis. The the god Artemis was just so important and profound to them. They had a temple to Artemis. They were able to host monuments and temples to Roman leaders who were deified as gods and other gods from Roman and Greek worlds. It was a very pagan place where they were looking to find someone or anyone to worship. And it was in the midst of that that Paul was very clear that there is one God worthy of praise and honor and glory. The world we live in isn't much different. And maybe in America we don't see a plethora of temples to other gods and other deities. Maybe we don't walk past statues and Asherah poles, but we do live in a culture that is desperate to worship something or someone or anyone if it can get us something, if it can give us what we feel like we need. And so in the midst of this culture, Paul is also making a very important declaration to us as well. Because belief in a God is a very broad concept. In fact, if you were to ask most of the people in the world alive today if they believed in a God, the answer would probably be yes. 
And so it's very important that we clarify what we mean as followers of Christ when we say that we believe in and worship and serve the one true God. And just like at Mars Hill, Paul does exactly that in this passage. And he does it both explicitly and he does it implicitly. We can see over and over again, not just in chapter 4, but all through the passage of Ephesians, the whole book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the God that he serves. He starts off by calling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In verse one, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over again, Paul very clearly articulates that he is a worshiper of the one true God, of the God of Israel, of the God who sent Christ into the world. But also in, verse four, or in chapter 4, excuse me, Paul says something very important about the nature of God. And he reveals the God that he worships in a much more subtle way. All throughout the Bible, the Trinity has a tendency to sneak up on us. There's not one particular passage where you can go inside of Scripture that says very explicitly, God is triune, that, that our God exists in Trinity, that He is three and one, and He's one God and three persons. There's not a passage of Scripture that says that directly. We have that in our creeds, we have that in our confessions, we believe that. It's even in our statement of faith as a church, that that's the God that we believe and worship. But to see that in Scripture, we have to look with a lot more nuance. But it's there. All through every page of Scripture, we see God as one who exists in three persons. We see it in the creation of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, it begins by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that same passage, it tells us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, was hovering over the waters, keeping everything in the exact place that it's supposed to be. But to find Christ in that creation story, we have to move forward in Scripture to the time when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see Paul tell us that through Jesus, all things were created, that all things were created through Him and by Him and for Him. And so even at the foundation of the world, God existed, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that in a beautiful picture in the life of Jesus after his baptism, when Jesus comes up from the water and we hear the voice of God in Scripture say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and then the Spirit of God descends on Jesus as he's in the water, and we see in one place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is an incredibly crucial part of the Christian faith. In his list of unifying factors of the church, Paul represents this all through this passage, showing us how important this is, but also how mysterious this is. That God is one, but God is three, because God is three in one. And it's one of those concepts that if you think too hard about it, it gives you that spiritual milkshake brain where you get some kind of brain freeze because it's so hard to think about because we can't really fully grasp exactly what that means. And this is one of the places in our faith that is a genuine mystery. There are many things inside of the Bible that we have to have faith to believe. Everything inside of Scripture and about our faith, we have to have faith to believe. We have to trust in God to believe it. But a lot of those things, God has given us very explicit detail to be able to understand and some really solid ground to be able to stand on to say, okay, I know why I believe this and this makes sense and I can understand this. 
But there are certainly parts of Scripture, especially parts of who God is, that we have to just trust in what God tells us. And so because we have all these other places where our faith is firm and sufficient and we have all the things that we need to be able to stand and trust in all of our limitations, we can stand on those things and trust the things that God asks us to trust on faith and faith alone. And so the Trinity is a mystery. And it was through this mystery that Paul was able to recognize another mystery. Because Paul reminds us that the God who is three in one has made for himself one body out of many believers. And remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, Paul pointed out that the church itself is a mystery, that we are many different people in many different parts, but God has brought us together to be one body. And so we see this picture of the Trinitarian God who is mysteriously three in one, somehow taking people from different places and backgrounds and stories and bringing us all together through faith in Christ to be one. And our belief in the triune God is fundamental to understanding our relationship not only to him, but to one another in the church. See, one of the most important responsibilities of the church is to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be the representation of God on earth. It's our job to imperfectly display what God makes perfect. And so we do that in the way that we love. We do that in the way that we serve. We do that in the way that we go and minister. We do that in the way that we share the gospel. But one of the things that we are supposed to do to communicate to the world something about God is to relate well with each other and to be in unison with each other. That we have to be one as God is one, at least to the best of our ability. And so that leads us to ask a very difficult question. What does the unity about the church, or what does the unity of the church say about the unity of our God? And we can ask that on a micro level and say, what does the unity of Redeeming Grace Community Church say about our God? And I think we're pretty good at being unified and loving each other, and so I I think we do that well. But if we zoom out and we say, what does the unity of the church as a whole the church around the world and through the ages, what does that say about the God that we claim to worship? What is our relationship with other churches or other people or other Christians or other denominations? What does that say about who God is? Because it's our responsibility to show the world this is the God that we serve. And if we are divided, we are not showing a proper picture of who God is. Paul called out the church at Corinth about this exact thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there were some arguments and some divisions happening in the church because people were aligning with different apostles and people that baptized them. And Paul says, what are you doing? And the question he asked them that is so powerful and profound when he's asking about their divisions and their rivalries, he says, is Christ divided? And obviously the answer to that question is no. And so Paul says, is Christ divided? Because he's not. And if Christ isn't divided, if we're supposed to represent the body of Christ, and if we're supposed to be showing Christ to the world, then why are we divided if he is not? We are united because we not only believe in a God, but we believe in the God, the God of scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Paul. 
The triune God eternally exists in His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is three in one and who has made us one in Christ. And so it's our job to reflect His unity in ours. We have to put our belief in God into action. And so our calling through this passage is to believe. To believe in God as He's presented in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. And then act like we believe in God. And that's not simply for each and every one of us as individuals. But for all of us, corporately, as the church of God, as the family of God, as the children of God, to go everywhere that we go with the belief in who God is and His unity constantly on our minds and constantly on our lips and show that to the world around us with every opportunity that we have because we are one because God is one. But Paul continues in verse 6 his description of God calling him one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In scripture there are two genealogies for Jesus. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and works forward until he gets to Jesus. And Matthew does this because he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience trying to convey that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. That Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting generations and generations to see. And so all through Matthew's book, he would show the readers how Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies in the Old Testament to be the one that was promised. And so he begins with Abraham to show the people who are listening, this is the guy. He's the one. This is the Son of God that we have been waiting for to come and to redeem us and restore us and save us. Luke's genealogy is a little different. Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus. And then it works backwards. And in the last, cha- last verse of Luke's genealogy, as he's listed all of these names that are very long and I'm far too sinusy and sick to say them today he closes by saying the son of enos the son of seth the son of adam the son of god and so instead of stopping at abraham luke walks all the way back to adam and then connects him directly to god and now why would he do this why would he make the change luke was writing to a man named theophilus a Gentile, someone who didn't have the same Jewish heritage and was coming from a completely different place. And Luke, much like Paul, who was writing to the church at Ephesus, who were mostly Gentile converts into Christianity, Luke was writing to a Gentile audience and he was making a very profound declaration. Because before the New Testament rolls around, before Christ, we see that Israel has this very special place with God. That they are God's chosen people, chosen to bring salvation into the world, and they're referred to as the children of God. But then Jesus enters the story and opens that language up, not just for one group of people, but for all nations. And Luke is writing to Theophilus saying, see, this isn't about one nationality. This isn't about one group of people that Jesus came into the world to remind us that we are all created by one God. And that one God has one plan to save many people from all different tribes and all different tongues and all different nations. And he has come and he has made this way possible. Now, anyone who trusts in the name of Christ can look at God as father. 
The gospel of Jesus is for all people. And that's why Paul uses this language calling God the Father who is over all and through all and in all. That Jesus came to make the way for people who were once, as Paul said, children of wrath and who were far off from God's plan and God's purpose. That Jesus came to bring those people in so that anyone who trusts in the name of Christ can be adopted as sons and daughters and can call God Father. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see the triune God creating. And we see God speak. And in this amazing Trinitarian language, he says, let us make man in our image. It says, so he made them in his image. Male and female, he created them. God created them. He created us. He created humanity and breathed life in humanity And we were meant to spread over the earth and fill the earth with God's image, with God's glory, with the characteristics and the nature of God. But we know in Genesis chapter 3, the story went off the rails a little bit because sin entered the world. And as sin entered the world, it disgraced the family name. It took the image of God that he placed in it and it messed it up and it perverted the image of God and no longer were we accurately representing who God was. And so every single one of us from generation to generation has continued that trend, has continued that marring of the image of God. And so something had to be done. And so in came Jesus who offered one salvation to anyone who would trust in him. And Jesus told us that when we trust in him, and that night when he was sitting with Nicodemus, he says that what he offers is an opportunity to be born again. Paul says that when we trust in Christ for salvation, when we believe in what Jesus has done for us, that the old is past and the new has come, that we are new creations in Christ. And he goes even further than that by telling us that we have been given a spirit of adoption. That we've been made sons and daughters of God by what Jesus has done for us. So taking us from being far off and bringing us close together, giving us the ability, as Paul says, to cry out, Abba, Father, to cry out, Daddy, to God. And God, as our one Father, unites His children together as one. What Paul describes here, calling God our Father, is our ultimate common ground because He makes us family. It's not just that we're one unit. It's not like we're a mechanism or an organism or an organization that we are one body and one family, brothers and sisters in Christ, because we all share in one Father. And if we have been created by the same God, if we have been saved by the same God from the same sins, because at the end of the day, though we sin differently, the reason we confess our sins week after week is because we all have sinned and that was enough to separate us from God. And so if we've been created by the same God and saved by the same God from the same sins, can we really be that different? Isn't that commonality far greater than the things that we think make us so different? A couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea of the narcissism of small differences. That a lot of times people who are very close together and who seem to have a lot in common tend to take out the magnifying glass and look for every little speck that makes us different. But when we see what Paul is telling us here in this passage of Scripture, especially that we have one God who has saved us by His grace and allows us to call Him Father as He calls us His children, we realize that our common ground 
is far bigger than the things that separate us. And the common ground that we have in Christ and God our Father is strong enough and wide enough for all of us to stand on it together. If we look around the room, our differences can seem very obvious. I think that becomes even more so if we zoom out and we look at Christians all around the world and throughout the ages, it can seem like we have very little in common. And our obvious differences can seem really insurmountable when there's no point of reference. The things that should and could divide us seem like they're completely impossible to get around when we don't have anything to give us some perspective. But a boulder can look enormous until it sits at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And the size of a star can be unfathomable to us, but yet in the night sky, the stars look so tiny and faint compared to the canopy of space all around them. And in the same way, our differences grow faint and dim when they're compared to the size and scope of the common ground that we share as followers of Christ, who has mysteriously made us one body with many different parts working together for the same cause and the same purpose. He's breathed life into us through one Spirit, and then we all share in the Holy Spirit of God who keeps us moving and working in the same rhythm and keeps us alive spiritually. We have one hope, that when we trust in Christ for salvation and we believe that He has accomplished everything that we need through his death and resurrection to be made whole, we have this hope that one day Jesus will come again and put everything back to the way that it's supposed to be to set the world to rights and all the things that divide us will be gone. All the things that break our hearts will be gone. All the things that cause us to have tears and mourning and sickness and even death itself and the sin that broke us apart will one day be taken away. We share in one Lord. And Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church and who leads us where we're supposed to go, but also keeps us breathing and keeps us alive and keeps us saved. We have one faith. All of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation have been given this faith as a gift. And there aren't levels, there aren't types of our faith, but we all have the saving faith that has enabled us to be a part of the family of God. We have one baptism. A common experience that reminds everyone who's been through the waters of baptism that you have been laid to death with Christ and raised again, that you are new, that your sins have been washed away, that you have been forgiven, and that you have been loved by God, and also that you have been brought into the family of God and that you belong together, that you belong with us as part of the church. And we have one God and Father of all. The God who is three in one, who has made us one. The God who not only created us, but sustains us and loves us and has adopted us into his family. That is a pretty good common ground. We live in a world that is broken and divided. The purpose of the church is to be a light to that world of something better to come. A world where all of God's children are perfectly united in Christ for all of eternity. And so let's be that light. Not only us at Redeeming Grace Community Church, but let's work to be the catalyst to be that light of the church all around the world. Let's be a kingdom of peace in a world of violence. 
Let's be a people of unity amidst a crowd of division. Let's be the body of Christ walking in unity and in harmony as long as we draw breath. And it begins when we realize that our common ground in Christ is strong enough to stand on as one. It begins by daily remembering that we are one body with one spirit, sharing in one hope because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all.